0: Welcome to Sonics Flight, the podcast devoted to all things Sonics. Sonics Flight is a monthly podcast discussing current events, news, and topics of interest to the Sonics community. We aim to entertain and educate builders and pilots of Sonics aircraft designs, inspiring them to complete and operate their aircraft safely and efficiently. Welcome to Sonics Flight. This is episode number 21, Electrical System Part 2. So our last episode, episode 20, we had Bob Knuckles uh, talking about electrical system. We covered a whole bunch of stuff, and we still didn't get to the end of the list. So we decided we needed to bring Bob back and uh, and finish out this list of topics with some of the sonic-specific things. So we'll go over some of those electrical system design concepts, construction best practices, and we'll try to try to finish this topic out. I'm the host, Jeff Schultz, builder and pilot of Sonic 604 and Sonics 1374. And once again, joining me are my two good flying buddies, John Gillis and Gary Motley. John has several hundred hours behind his Jabiru-powered YX, and he's best known for his customizations like his his tilt-back canopy, his uh, custom engine cowl, his tow brakes, and a whole bunch of other cool stuff. And Gary is builder of Hound Dog, Aero-V-powered tail dragger. He's a longtime pilot, former CFI, with uh, over 600 hours of Sonic's time. And you guys all know Bob Knuckles, Bob, great to have you back again. Bob is uh, best known for his work on the aeroelectric connection. He uh, publishes a book of electrical system knowledge, advice, techniques, sample electrical system diagrams, and then uh, his, uh, his constant presence on the the matronics aeroelectric email form so bob thanks for coming back and joining us again
1: pleased to be here all right guys well um
0: i think we're gonna skip all the news and we'll just push all that off for next time and just jump right back in so with that um we talked about going through some Sonic-specific um, electrical system issues. So the first thing I'd like to talk about, Bob, is uh, I, I really want to dig into permanent magnet alternators. Uh, and so if you look at all the engine choices that are commonly used on a Sonics, the the Jabiru, the Aero-V, uh, some of the other ones, um, well, Corvair is not a good one, but, but uh, those two are certainly the most common um, and even Rotax to a degree. They they all use these permanent magnet alternators that are driven off of the flywheel, and then they have to have some sort of rectifier regulator to uh, to provide that usable output. And my sense is that the that system is a little bit different than your classic aircraft alternator. So, Bob, tell us a little bit about PM alternators and maybe how they're a little different. And then I want to get into some of the some of the the effects that that has on our airplanes
1: okay well you're certainly correct there it's a totally different breed of cat because uh, the alternator output is essentially uncontrolled the voltage is directly proportional to engine rpm and at uh, cruise rpm the windings on the alternator are adjusted such that you can mm, utilize what magnetics are available in the permanent magnets on the rotor there's a balance to be achieved there to get maximum energy out of that and then that may wind up being a voltage that's really pretty severe. Uh, I think the open circuit uh, voltage on some of these alternators at cruise is like about 30 volts. And so the regulator really has to control the output energy of that alternator by literally disconnecting the alternator from the battery and then hooking it back up a few milliseconds later it's a duty cycle switched switching technique that either puts full output of the alternator to the battery or none at all. In other words, it's not really a, a, uh, a linear uh, feedback loop. So it doesn't
0: uh, hold it at 14 volts or something. It just surges on and off repeatedly.
1: If you look at it on an oscilloscope on a waveform on a, a pulse-by-pulse basis, yeah, it's, it's pretty ratty looking. But the average voltage is still 14.2, and that's something we strive for in the rectifier regulator designs. In fact, I'm working on a new one, and uh, I think it's going to be better, and we'll probably be capable of working on everything from an SD8 from uh, BNC up through the Rotax uh, 20 amp or 22 amp uh, permanent magnet alternator. So it'll be a one-size-fits-all with with a... With a more modern approach to the electronics.
2: Uh, Bob, my um, my Jabiru came with a Kubota voltage regulator. Yes. So I, I assume that, you know, these diesel tractors and possibly even like lawnmowers or riding mowers use the same technology and we're just uh, sponging off of that?
1: Essentially, that's correct. Uh, there is a variation sure. on the theme. Sure. in that some of the motorcycles... And the larger, oh, what do might call? Oh, sorry, second. Let me turn the monitor a monitor uh, There are some three-phase versions of the permanent magnet alternators, and I think John Deere has one. And and uh, uh, a lot of the motorcycle guys, uh, the larger motorcycles, will have three-phase alternators. Right. And those are really a lot better uh, alternator, and uh, the regulators that come with them are a lot, uh, a lot more sophisticated. But you're kind of stuck with the alternator that just comes on the back of the engine, and I suspect
3: they're all single-phase alternators. What what exactly is in the regulator itself? I mean, when I looked at it, all we can really pretty much see on the outside it just looks like a big chunk of black plastic with a couple of metal ears. <laughs> on it.
1: Yeah, well, it's a full-wave rectifier. There's uh, there's two diodes in there that are half of a bridge, and there are two silicon control rectifiers. Uh, which are the other half of a of a full wave bridge, and then there's some electronics that controls the triggering of those SCR's in order to maintain the output voltage. It's a very very simple regulator. Uh, in fact, I think there's a, a exemplar. I can after we're done here, I'll email you a link to a schematic for one. I've got the schematic for the oh, it's the Ducati regulator used on the road taxes. and that's it's an it's typical of the regulators used on all of the single phase alternators.
0: Okay. I'll, I'll put that in the show notes also. So if anybody wants to find it and they can find it there.
2: Uh, Bob, I want to make sure before we move on off from regulators, um, I just replaced mine because I'm chasing down some electrical noise in my engine. And um, I was recommended to buy a uh, quality branded Kubota regulator, but on, amazon and ebay i could buy a chinese knockoff for (laughs) a third of the price am i screwing myself by buying that chinese knockoff
1: Uh, probably not probably not there's a company let's see i'm trying to remember the name of them uh uh, they make about uh, probably half of the regulators out there on motorcycles and it's a large large uh uh, organization with uh, uh they make transistors and SCRs and, and a lot of commercial products. And they also make the regulators for both single-phase and three-phase permanent magnet alternators. And they're really quite good. And, and like you say, it's about a third the price, so it's a low-risk experiment. I'd give it a try and, uh, and see if that helps. But it could be that if you've got a noise issue, it really isn't centered around the regulator, but more likely around grounding issues.
3: So what we talk about replacing them. I've also had to replace one about a year or so ago. I think I got about five hundred hours or so out of mine, which some people seem to think that was a little bit high. Do you know what, any kind of time between mean failure rates we might expect on something like this?
1: a solid state device, that'll run the lifetime of the airplane.
3: Some people have thought perhaps it's related to heat issues. Do you think yes. that's a possibility? Yes. So where Great. we have them placed on our firewall might have might we just might have gotten luckier than some of the other people. <laughs>
1: Uh, that's a big can of worms because obviously uh, temperature profiles are different under the cowl and and where you mount it. You can see huge differences on the firewall depending on how airflow sets up under the under the cowl and how close it is to radiant heating off of components of the engine.
0: So, Bob is is heat is excessive heat is that the prime candidate for why regulators go bad?
1: Yes, yes. Okay. Those, those little regulators. If, if there's any uh, kind of hammer and tongs criteria for the selection of your regulator, get the one with the biggest, fattest case on it you can find with lots of fins on it. <laughs> it. The ability to get the heat out of the little beastie is critical to its survival.
2: Well, and, and my, the Kubota I bought from the Kubota dealer is exactly that, and it was a lot beefier than the Chinese ones I was looking on online.
1: Yeah. Well, it, it depends on the electronics inside. One of the things I'm doing on the design I'm working on is the, the components, the ratings of the components inside are exceedingly conservative. In other words, they're much more robust than they need to be. Not because I want to carry a lot of current, but because it reduces the heat that those components generate. In other words, you've got, you've got two approaches to keeping the thing cool. One is make a really good mechanism for getting the heat out of it but the other one the other side of the coin is try not to generate the heat in the first place and uh so it's i've been working with these kinds of regulators now in fact my introduction to bnc specialty products was back about 19 golly i don't know 78 or 9 or somewhere in there and it was to help them develop the regulator and the and the and the product for that sd8 alternator the first that was their very first product and that's how I met Bill Bainbridge. So I've I've got a, a track record that goes back a few years with that product. And and certainly getting heat out of those little bitty guys is is probably the number one criteria.
0: So Bob, um, I aside from heat, are there any other things that we ought to be doing to kind of give ourselves the best chance of keeping those things alive?
1: I, I don't think there's anything you can do. It, it really depends. I have taken apart some of those regulators, and they're hard to get apart because they pot them, and you got to soak the potting compound out of them. And I've, I've found some that were poorly designed internally from a thermal management perspective. And so that really puts you at a disadvantage for uh, uh, trying to cool a thing because maybe there's nothing you can do to really uh, make up for a bad design in the first place. But uh, if, if you're really wanting a class act regulator, rectifier, this thing that's made in Germany right now, I think it's called the Silent Hectech, is uh, is an all CNC machine product with uh, uh, nice beefy terminals on it, and but it's only sold in Europe, they won't sell them to the United States, and I don't know what they cost, but I've had one here, and I've, I've played with it, and it, Runs quite cool. It's got a lot of heat sink on it, and it's got some beefy components inside. So if you could find one of those and stick it on your airplane, I'd, I'd, I'd have a lot of confidence that that would run the lifetime of the airplane.
0: Or we just get you to finish up your regulator and buy it from BNC.
1: Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm speaking a little out of school here, but it's not too far off. Oshkosh is coming up, and we've got to get that product uh, get that product matured here. And, uh, so it's, it's, it's taking a hint from the side of the tech, tech guys. It's going to have a lot of heat sink fins on it. It's a totally CNC machine package. Did I send you pictures of it?
0: No, you talked about it, but you didn't send me any photos. And, 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 uh, I'm really excited cause, um, I'm, I'm looking forward to a better regulator.
1: I've spent some time on this. I've been, been mulling this design over, gone through several generations of, of design change over the last six months with it. And, I'm, uh, I'm pretty happy with it. And it will be adjustable. It'll have a, a pot access. You take out a ten thirty 1030 screw and 1032 screw in the side of the case, and you can get a little pot underneath. And uh, and it won't be wired up with, uh, with splices. It's going to have a, a D-sub connector on the side of it. You, you can unplug the thing and send it in for check checkout. And if they, if it's bad, we'll send you another one, and you just plug it in. There's no, uh, no wires to cut.
3: So you'll be able to, to fine tune the voltage output then? Is that what you're yes. talking about? Yes. Okay.
1: And in fact, something I'm looking forward to, uh, I don't know if any of you guys uh, uh, listened in on that uh, uh, EAA webinar on lithium batteries. Uh, it was last month sometime, I like think about three weeks. Ago. Um, the, the lithium in my mind is kind of a mixed bag. It's, certainly it's got performance capabilities. I think the risks in terms of of uh, kitchen fire and those sort of things is exceedingly low. The The lithium iron phosphate batteries have proven very stable. But the difficulty I'm having with them is those batteries are fragile. If you discharge them below 2.x volts, you kill them. I mean, you do it one time, that battery's gone. And it's pretty easy to overcharge them. So the very best performing lithium products will have a whole bunch of electronics in the box with the battery. And that's what they had to do to get these batteries certified onto, onto, uh, factory airplanes. And of course, EarthX is the company that's, that's leading the charge on getting uh, products into experimental airplanes and motorcycles and so forth. And their batteries do perform as advertised. They're light. They, they, produce a lot of energy they've got all the electronics to save the battery if you from being over discharged and overcharged and short-circuited and so forth but the electronics doubles the price of the product <laughs> it's kind of like having a, a fuse in there that, that costs as much as the device that's uh, being protected
3: yeah i've got yeah. a pair of them and they're pretty pricey
1: yeah and, uh, and so I, I keep looking at what I call, I, I like to study cost of ownership issues. In other words, over the lifetime of the airplane, uh, how many batteries are you going to put in this airplane? Uh, if you had a, a decent quality lead acid battery, by a Hawker or, or a, a Panasonic or whatever. Uh, those are not terribly expensive batteries. And if you take care of them, uh they ought to run three or four years so if you're going to have this airplane 10 years or 12 years uh, you're going to put four batteries in it well can you make one of those batteries one of the one of the lithium batteries cost two to three times as much will it last two to three times as long in the airplane and the jury is still out on that they haven't been on the market long enough we're very confident in our ability to get our money's worth out of a lead acid battery, but I don't know that we have that we know about the lithium batteries yet. So, uh, you no, know, for my airplane, uh, I'd, I'd stay with lead acid batteries because uh, uh, just to get lithium in there for weight savings is, I think, a poor return on investment.
3: Well, unless you have to run multiple batteries.
1: Uh,. Well, and do you need to run multiple batteries? What under what circumstances would you do that?
3: Well, if you have an engine that's totally electrically uh, energized, such as like some of the automotive conversions other than Volkswagen, uh, you certainly need a, a good supply of power.
1: Well, and that's true, but alternators are are generally pretty doggone reliable, and if we can get the rectifier regulator problem uh, kind of resolved, I think that's that's going to make those energy sources more reliable yet but the battery ought to be the most reliable source of energy on the airplane if you take care of it I mean batteries are like houseplants you know you ignore the things and they'll they'll go south on you and if you don't do occasional capacity checks on them uh, if the alternator quits you say oh well okay I got the battery fully charged gee when was the last time I checked to see how long I can fly with this thing and now you've got an emergency situation because you have no idea how long that battery is going to carry your airplane. And uh, I, I like to design an electrical system so that there is no single failure that is more than a maintenance issue. Uh, if, if you got an all in right year crap guy, oh, I cap-checked the battery here a little while back, and I'm good for 45 minutes or an hour or an hour and a half. And you can make plans based on that knowledge. But there isn't one certified airplane pilot in a hundred flying around out there that has that kind of knowledge about the battery in his airplane.
3: Now, can you load capacity of those batteries, uh, the, the lithium batteries, as you do a lead-acid battery?
1: Sure, sure, you bet.
3: Same, same equipment?
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, you just put a load on them. In fact, if, if you've got an endurance load that you're concerned about in your airplane, check it on a nice day VFR flight. I mean, just shut the alternator off someday, go into the endurance mode and, and start watching the voltage. Uh, and, and and you can check that thing to make sure it's going to run this, the necessary goodies for a known period of time.
3: So if a battery was, was rated, you know, say 12 amp hours for, for, for an hour, then uh, what would you consider, if you were to do it in that type of method, what would you consider the battery still being good if it lasted, you know, Forty-five minutes, or forty minutes, or
1: you have to you have to do that yourself. From the from the certified airplane perspective, uh, they consider end of life on a battery to be at about eighty percent of out of the box capacity. So if if you ordered a battery and it's a ten ampere hour battery when you put it in the airplane, if it gets down to eight ampere hours, then it's time to replace it. And most people in in General aviation don't want to do that. It's still cranking the engine just fine. <laughs> and say, so, "Well, my, my battery's good. I got the airplane started last week." But if the alternator quits, they have no idea how long it'll run the stuff in the airplane. And uh, and and certified airplanes, a lot of them require you, especially airplanes that are flown for hire, for example. I don't what is it, Part One Thirty Five or One? I forget, One Twenty One. Yeah,
3: One Thirty Five, One Twenty One,
1: either one. Yeah. Uh, You got to cap check the battery occasionally and meet a certain endurance requirement. And the -the off-the-shelf requirement, I think, is like 30 minutes. But personally, I would like to think that I could take off from an airport, punch through a layer of clouds, and be a VFR over the top, have an alternator quit, and then still get to my airport of intended destination, battery only, and have fuel be my only limit to endurance. Now, it sounds like it's a, it's a Optimistic. tough Optimistic. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I've done some designs for people that, that that we've been able to do that. And in some cases, I've had alternators quit on, on airplanes that I've rented. I mean, I go out and rent an airplane. I have no idea what kind of problems they've had with the alternators. I have no idea how good the battery is. But the stuff in my flight bag will get me where I want to go, whether anything on the panel is lit up or not. So <laughs> I consider my my flight endurance to still be limited only by how much fuel is on board. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it takes that kind of thought and then periodic checks to make sure that those endurance requirements are met and, and you're maintaining them. And that's one thing to be careful of on the lithium batteries. uh, In fact, I got all over the lithium guys early on. This has been four or five years ago now. They started talking about lead acid equivalents. And you still see that term in their advertising. Mm -hmm. And what they're talking about is oh, well, I've got this battery here. It's the ETX36, and it's a lead acid equivalent of a, or equivalent to a lead acid so and so. And what they're talking about is engine cranking ability. And when a lead-acid guy talks to you about ampere hours, he's talking about energy stored. In other words, it's endurance capability. And I've got an ETX36 here on my bench. They sent me one to play with, and I just cap-checked it here, I don't know, about three or four months ago. And it's practically like new, but it is a 7-ampere-hour battery. It's a nice light thing, and it'll crank an engine like gangbusters. I've run it in my, uh, my Kia Sedona, but uh, it's still a 7-ampere-hour battery. So it doesn't contain a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. So that's a thing to be careful of is is to know the numbers for the products you're putting in and what you expect the, them to do for you and, uh, and design for that.
0: Well, Bob, I want to... Uh... I want to explore just a couple more facets of the uh, the PM alternator. Uh, the first one is, what do you think the best way to control the alternator output is? Do you just run it through a switch on its way to the battery? Do you use a disconnect relay? Do you do you break the output line? Do you break the AC input line? What do you think the best way to control that thing is?
1: Uh, originally, all we did was just shut off the the. Uh dc output from the rectifier regulator and that's that's what they recommended in the installation manuals for those products uh and but over the last 10 or 12 years on my z figures i put a relay in the ac output from the alternator in other words flat shut that energy off break that power path and we will be doing that with this new rectifier regulator and the relay will come with the kit
0: what is the advantage to doing that
1: well, a uh, couple of, one is you don't run your DC power through a switch. Uh, switching high current DC is one of the toughest things you can ask a switch to do. And uh, on the other side of the coin is, oh, you, you get in that AC line to switch power, and switching AC is really easy to do because the, the voltage goes through zero every few milliseconds, and you don't build up an arc between the switch contacts and warm the thing up. So uh, switch life in an AC system is uh, 10 times that of the same switch in a DC. So it's it's easier to break it. And and secondly, you can have some failures in the rectifier regulator that you might be in good shape by just unhooking the rectifier regulator from the airplane on the DC side. But the AC output maybe got a short on it. And it winds up burning up your windings in your alternator or or causing more damage. And so when I have a reason to shut the system down, I'd like to make it stone cold. And the best way to do that on a PM alternator is break that AC lead.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm partial to that method. That's what I use in my sonics. And, and one of the things that I always thought is if the regulator is on its way to a tonal meltdown, shutting off the AC voltage should stop that. Shutting off or just blocking the output from going into the bus might save your your radios and your bus, but it won't stop that thing from turning into slag on the firewall.
1: That's that's not a not a not a bad assessment. Yes. Correct. You're correct. And if I were going to try to get a, a certification on that, if I were putting that kind of an alternator on a certified airplane, I'd have to do all the failure mode effects analyses that the go through those same scenarios that you just mentioned and uh, for me to sell that to the FAA I'd have to shut off the alternator through, at the AC circuit. That relay would have to be in there.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. I- is there a flat out wrong way to do this? <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh uh, golly I don't know. Uh, most of if, if you want to talk about a sense of wrongness on doing things on, on airplanes I think the most profound examples of wrongness were what started the aeroelectric connection in the first place. It was my first trip to Oshkosh in 1986, and I got invited out on the flight line to help somebody troubleshoot something on a long easy. And this guy had uh, zip cord, and electrical tape, and terminals mashed on with pairs of pliers, and and just a, a hodgepodge of wiring techniques and materials that were downright scary, and and he was in more at more risk for things coming apart and getting into trouble than for components failing, uh, failing to perform as advertised. And so, most of the wrongness that we see in in uh, home-built airplanes has more to do with materials and techniques of installing it. And then just a few rudimentary things like ground uh, architectures. Uh, you know, they get ground loops, they get noise in the headphones, or something like that. And those things are usually pretty easy to fix. But yeah. in terms of things, somebody go do it and say he's at, at, at bad risk of coming down in a ball of flames because his electrical system system was miswired. That's that's exceedingly rare.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, what about noise? Um, some of these engines, um, you know, the ignition system puts out noise. Other sources of noise come through uh, other places. Um, how prone to putting noise into your aircraft are these alternators and regulators?
1: The alternators really aren't all that bad because most of these alternators, when you're at cruise, they're pretty well loaded and and the the voltages get more stable the alternators working hard but it's not you know it's not swinging wildly in terms of voltage excursions uh and i've i think there's some some oscilloscope traces on my website that shows that the ripple that these alternators put on the bus really isn't all that bad and it's certainly well inside what you would expect to see on a bus in a certified airplane it's, it's awfully easy for people over the counter at Oshkosh to sell you a new, uh, some new component for your system. So, well, this thing's uh, a lot quieter than brand C, and so it's going to be less likely to be a problem in your airplane. But then the question to ask, am I having a problem now, and do I know where that problem originates? In other words, who is the antagonist, and who is the victim, and what is the propagation mode between those two? And more often than not, if you do have a noise problem, it's easy to fix in the airplane and doesn't require going to Oshkosh and buying the next less noisy device over the counter. Because uh, the bus in an airplane or any vehicle is noisy as all get out. And and most avionics and components that, are, that go in airplanes are designed to live in that environment. So if you've got a noise problem, you've got something going on outside that environment that probably has to do with architecture, the way you put it together. and you just got to chase that down and fix it.
3: And it's, it's usually not difficult. So the alternator filters, you're saying, really just are not all that helpful? Then. No,
1: yeah. no. That capacitor on there that uh, people put on, that's, that's there mostly to make the alternator run well without a battery online. It has nothing to do with the noise. In fact, those traces show, uh, the the traces on my website show that with the capacitor there or not there, there's almost indistinguishable differences in the traces. I'd have to put a spectrum analyzer on there and and measure it down into fine details to tell you that that capacitor does you any good.
0: What about the commercially available uh, power filters you buy, like at a CB shop or something like that? Uh, What, What do they do for you? Nothing. Not a thing. They, they got to do something. They cost like thirty
3: bucks.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hey, I got one, and I was told to put it on,
3: so okay. I got to feel better about it. <laughs> well, maybe it's just psychological first aid.
1: Well, it is. Uh,
3: it could be a placebo, but
1: well, uh, here's here's the thing. There's it having worked like fifty years in selling things on a certain airplanes. There's there's uh, a couple of sets of numbers that you learn to to respect and live with. One is, hey son, you're going to go up and hook your, your magic product to this beach jet and you got to hook to this 28-volt bus and I can tell you that you're going to have this kind of noise on there, that kind of noise, it's going to be this level, this frequency and if you put a pair of headphones on there and listen to it, golly, it's it's trashy, it's terrible. Then, as a supplier of gizmos to go on that airplane, Uh, There'll be testing you have to do. It's like DO-160 and it says, all right, uh, we're going to give you hurdles to jump that are at least twice as high as what you're going to find in the airplane. And so you design your products expecting those noises to be there. And then you design your airplane such that the noises do not exceed those levels, and it's real easy to keep them within boundaries. So you got this kind of headroom, this no man's land between the worst the airplane puts out and the and the most sensitive uh, characteristics of the appliance, and there's this big band of protection in there, and and so. The antagonists never get so so noisy that the victims are are overwhelmed, and that's that's how we've made things live in airplanes now for seventy five years, and the automotive industry is the same thing. Uh, the, the radio that goes in your car, I mean, there's very sensitive low level circuitry in there that plays tapes and CDs and. In digital circuitry and so forth and the bus in your car is no cleaner than the one in your airplane in fact it may be worse But that radio survives very nicely in that environment because it's designed for it So if you've got a noise problem, you've either got an appliance that was not designed to live in that well-known noise or it's been misinstalled in some way and and there's the chapter on in my book on on filtering out noises or chasing down noise problems is it was the last chapter I w- wrote. I put it off for twelve years. I was not looking forward to trying to write the darn thing because it's it's like playing, uh, remember the game clue, you know, Mr. Mustard with the rope in the library and all that kind of thing. You've got all of these potential noise sources and propagation modes and victims in the airplane. And then you have to connect the dots between the two guys that are wrestling with each other. But I, I spent a lot of my career chasing noises out of airplanes, and I never did encounter one we couldn't fix. Some of them were challenging. And, and when we found the reason, some of them were pretty damn stupid. <laughs> but but they can always be fixed.
0: I, I know in my Sonics, um, the the things I found – I was getting a little bit of ignition noise, which, you know, you kind of solve at the engine side. Yes. Um, I was getting some cross-coupling between various wires. So my antenna wire was laying very close to my big bundle of wires going into my EFIS, and I was getting some weird stuff coming through that way. And uh, I tried a bunch of various techniques. I used uh, clamp-on ferrite beads and stuff like that. And in the end, just kind of rerouting my antenna wire was really all it took to solve it.
1: The, the ferrite beads and filters and things are, are kind of band-aid things that are marginally successful, if at all. Uh, I've, I've never been able to make those do anything good for me in a in a production environment. If your antenna coax is radiating, there's probably something wrong with the coax. In other words, it's cut loose at the ground end at the radio or at the antenna end or something like that. But... Coaxes ought to happily coexist with every other kind of signal in any bundle at all. We don't we don't try to
3: separate them in a beach jet at all. Uh, are you rec- do you still using like the RG fifty six or eight or going with all four
1: hundred? Yeah, yeah. So. well, it's RG four hundred is probably a modern ones or the double shielded, yeah. but it's double shielded more for uh, uh, radio performance than it is for noise mitigation. That that shielding is uh, shielding a wire is almost never a fix for a noise problem.
3: And so, did you? You just said you didn't have much trouble about co-locating these things with other other wires or other antennas. In?
1: No, uh, we we don't even. I have run across a few cases. In fact, I think one of the last ones I encountered was a on the Hawker 800s, that design on the annunciator panel, that thing was badly done in the 1970s and it had been grandfathered through into airplanes we were building in 1995 and it was exceedingly sensitive to noise, would never pass the O160 qualification requirements then he added some kind of a cooling blower back in the tail of the airplane it was like a 400 cycle 115 volt AC powered blower and they ran a single wire back there to power up that motor operating the, the, the motor against ground. And so here I had this, this one wire carrying all of the motor current and radiating its magnetic field out uh, into every other wire in the bundle. So it was a terrible antagonist. And then I had this lousy annunciator system that would pick that stuff up. And you could sit and flip that motor switch on and off and get all kinds of Christmas tree lights to go off on the enunciator system and uh, to fix that I I ran a twisted pair back there to run that motor and so as long as you got forever electron going after the motor you got another electron coming forward and they run on a twisted pair and the noise went away. Now it didn't make the enunciator panel any better but it cured that noise problem in terms of that motor being an antagonist. So it can be pretty convoluted stuff, but shielding that wire would not have helped.
0: Why is that? Why wouldn't Why wouldn't a shield work and a twisted pair did?
1: Well, shielding is an electrostatic uh, decoupling mode. Uh, and by that, uh, the, by, about the only place in a single-engine airplane where you will see effective use of shielding is the P-leads for the magnetos. If you take an oscilloscope and look at the at the signal on those wires while the engine is running, my God, it's a terrible looking thing, and it's really spiky, and it's got very fast rise time, high voltage uh, excursions on it. Now you lay a wire next to that that is unshielded, and you get literally capacity of coupling between the high voltage spikes on the P-lead and this little audio wire that you might tie into the same bundle. And just by running a shield on either one of the leads, you can shield the audio lead or you can shield the P-lead, and you can break that coupling mode and the noise goes away.
0: But but you're saying that only those really high voltage wires are are going to benefit from that. Is it, that what you're saying?
1: It has to be a it has to be a, a a wire that has a very unique fast rise time signal on it and usually high voltage, and uh, and then it has to be paired very closely. I mean, literally tied into a bundle with uh, some wire that's got a low level audio signal on it or or some sensitive thing, and and people just don't expose themselves like that anymore. All year. Your CAN bus in your automobile is run all over the automobile on a twisted pair. No shielding at all.
3: Bob, what yeah. what do you recommend for a minimum twist rate per inch or so, however you want to say it, for the twisted wire pairs?
1: Oh, it's, it's kind of at your convenience. Uh, no I've, magic number? No, no. I, I've made my own twisted pairs. I'll take a couple of 22-gauge wires and string them out in the shop, put, a couple of, put the ends in the vise and twist them with a the drill motor.
3: Yeah, that's the way I do mine too.
1: And then you then you have to be careful when you back them off. Put the drill first <laughs> and take that off, or you'll have you snarled snakes.
3: <laughs> yeah, you got a, a bunch of useless wire if you take it off too quickly.
1: You got it. You got it. But anywhere from uh, oh a turn per inch to a turn every two inches is fine.
3: Oh, that's even a lot looser than I did. I've made yeah, up a lot of it. excess wire.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Well, the, all the twisting does is keep them in good proximity with each other as they snake their way
3: through the airplane. Makes them much stiffer too.
1: Yes.
0: Well, Bob, um, I want to I want to get to a couple other topics too. Uh, I want to talk about overvoltage protection. So, give us a, a quick overview on what are we trying to accomplish with overvoltage protection, and what's the simplest way to do that?
1: Well, the the lake of course the only place an overvoltage comes from is an alternator or a generator. I mean, the regulator has gone south, and the alternator or generator. If we're talking a 1960s era or 50s airplane the generators going full bore and, and the voltage starts climbing uh, if you've got a battery online the battery will do everything it can to keep that voltage under control it'll it'll soak up the excess output from a alternator a generator for quite some period of time Uh, You can run a 60 amp alternator with a 17 amp hour fully charged battery, and the voltage immediately jumps up to about 16 or 17, and climbs rather slowly from there. Now, within a few minutes, it might be up to 20, but your over-voltage protection system is designed to respond in about a couple of hundred milliseconds. So, the battery becomes the first firewall to keeping the voltage under control while the overvoltage system says, oops, something's wrong here, I'm going to shut the alternator off. But it's not something that has to happen in microseconds. It, it, if you have it happen over uh, uh, the overvoltage software I'm writing right now, I said I will stand 16 volts for one second, and, uh, and I'll put up with 20 volts for uh, uh, a half a second or, uh, or 300 milliseconds. Well, all your DL160 qualified stuff you buy is good for 20 volts for one second. So I'm going to design my software to take the alternator down in a third or less of that qualification time of one second. And that's, that's a long time in the electrical world. I mean, it's a digital world. Now, you start talking three or four or 500 milliseconds, you can, <laughs> you can do a lot of stuff in a microprocessor in that period of time. So, an overvoltage event is not something that is, what do I want to say? It shouldn't be scary.
0: It's not a catastrophic immediate failure.
1: Exactly, exactly. Because your battery is a really good buffer for keeping the thing from taking off for the moon. Now, if the battery were not there, uh, a 60 amp alternator that is lightly loaded in the system. Uh, and on, a, Like on a Lycoming, on these belt-driven alternators on RVs, I think that alternator turns 10,000 RPM up there. And uh, if it's lightly loaded, if it goes into overvoltage and there's not a lot of system loads that help keep that under control and the battery's not present, it would go to a couple of hundred volts in 100 milliseconds. Mm. I mean, it takes off for the moon and it can be catastrophic.
3: Is that going to make your toes tingle when you're flying that thing?
1: (laughs) No, it would, uh, it, it, makes the panel lights really bright for a while and, and you might get curls of smoke out of some pieces of avionics and, you know, a few things like that, but.
0: So, so how does the crowbar, uh, how does the crowbar work? Uh,
1: the, the crowbar system is, is, uh, it got its name out of the computer business and, and I remember reading about that, those things in Electronics Magazine in probably 1980 or somewhere in there. And uh, it was developed as a way to control uh, runaway power supplies in the 5-volt world. But back then, people like NCR and IBM had these computers, these massive computers that ran on 5 volts. And the, it wasn't uncommon to have a 5-volt power supply... That was good for a couple of hundred amps. I mean, can you imagine two gauge wire wiring up the back of a computer? And uh, but if those those power supplies went over about six and a half volts, it would toast a million dollars worth of integrated circuit. So they needed a good way to respond to that over voltage condition and shut it down. But they had to they had to do it in series with something that already draws. A couple of hundred amps, and they didn't want to put relays and switches and contactors in there to do that. So, some guy says, Well, let's put a fuse in series with the output to the power supply, and then just put this SCR, this, this silicon controlled rectifier, right across the five volt bus. And if it gets above 5.4 volts, I'm going to trigger that SCR and throw a dead short on the five volt line. And it immediately drops down to one volt or less. And then the fuse pops. And I thought, man, that's just pretty doggone elegant. You're not asking the fuse to do anything it wasn't designed to do. And it's it's instantaneous. There's no arcing of contacts. There's no moving parts. And I began to, and I was designing overvoltage relays to go in, in the certified airplanes. Beach and Cessna were big customers of mine and i said boy i would love to get rid of those relays and uh and i had uh, an opportunity to put a crowbar over voltage protection system on the first certified airplane it was going to be the beach lightning it was the first turboprop single engine airplane and uh i got qualified into that design program and then they canceled the program so I didn't get another opportunity until some years later I had designed it into all of B and C's alternator products and uh, and it kind of took off from there it's it's been adopted by plain power and and uh, Lamar and you name it. it it's it's everywhere but it's simply a solid state replacement for the classic relay and uh, in the case of this new rectifier regulator, we're going to have a relay in there for alternator control anyhow. So I don't need the crowbar system. I'm, I'm going back to relays, but it's now in series with the AC output from the PM alternator. And in our in an overvoltage condition, I'll just open that relay.
0: So if you do use a crowbar in your system, you use it in conjunction with a fuse or or a circuit breaker, and that's what the, and that's what actually shuts everything down. That's it.
1: And it's uh, the really cool thing about it is it once you trigger that SCR, the power is removed from the alternator in microseconds. I mean, it drags it to zero in a heartbeat, so it's very fast and uh, no smoke. No, uh, oh, no the break we use breakers upstream of them, and the, and the breaker pops
0: okay. Well, uh, I want to hear your thoughts about uh, master contactors, master switches, and avionic switches. So give us your philosophy on all that stuff.
1: Uh, well, the, the, uh, the master relay or the battery relay, of course, has been with us since batteries first went into airplanes, except if the battery was located very close to where the pilot was sitting, and you could have a battery switch. And a Piper Tri-Pacer, I took dual instruction in back in 1961. Uh, the battery was under the passenger side front seat. And uh, and the master switch was literally a toggle switch on the on the front of the seat frame. You'd have to reach over there under your passenger's knees and, and flip the switch. And similarly, the starter Uh, That didn't have a starter contactor on it. It had a the equivalent of the old uh, Stomping on the floor starter uh, switch, foot operated switch Except that it had a little mushroom head on it And it was under the pilot seat and you'd reach down and push on that to energize the starter So it's entirely possible and practical to have a totally manually operated switching system for all of your fat wires And I don't know where do you put the batteries in the sonics?
0: They're on the firewall.
1: Okay, so they're they're out of reach. There there are some switches that you could uh, that I've seen that guys have designed that operate on Bowden controls, push pull cables, for a battery master. And the idea is if you can get rid of the battery contactor, that is a source of energy. That uh, it's it's a load on the alternator. It's about eight tenths of an amp, and you figure, well, gee, golly, I can run a couple of radios on eight tenths of an amp. So, if you could get rid of the battery contactor in its entirety, in terms of its electrical load, well, that increases the energy available to run other things in the airplane. But, uh, are you aware of people that are getting into energy, uh, getting into a corner for available energy in a sonics?
0: Well, not so much more. Um, It was just kind of a a thought, Um, is there a problem you know, if you say, oh, I, I'm just going to stick with traditional, you know, logic and go ahead and put a, a a master, a battery contactor in there. Is there any problem? Are these things reliable? Is there any advantage to not putting them in? Or is it something that we just really don't need to worry about? Stick them in and be ha- be done? Well, the,
1: the legacy idea behind the battery master is if you look through FR23 or, or uh, 25, uh, you'll find a statement in there to some effect that says, the pilot or the crew shall have control over every energy source in the airplane. And this means a battery master and an alternator or generator switch. And when you shut those switches off, that reduces the ship's wiring to a maximum cold condition. So the battery contactor is always mounted very close to the battery. And uh, and of course the alternator switch is a, removes power from the field or in the case of the Sonics you break that AC circuit and the idea is that when the airplane is on short final to the rocks uh, you reduce the probability of an electrical fire exacerbating things after you're on the rocks so that's that was the whole notion behind you know shut off the fuel shut off all the electrics and, and then try to make as controlled a with the earth as you can Uh and that, that's an idea that's been with us for a long time, and whether or not it's, it's really served a good and useful purpose. I've talked to guys that investigated uh, airplane accidents. In fact, a good friend of mine at Beach says, uh, I walk up to a, a pile of Beach Jet on the ground, and he says, I can tell you that if the airplane is sitting there in a big pile of burnt-up aluminum, the battery is still going to be in the airplane. And if the thing didn't burn after it hit, the battery's going to be out in the bushes someplace because it got kicked out when the airplane broke up. Now, that was kind of anecdotal, but it kind of sort of makes sense. That battery is an intense source of high energy delivery. And if you've got spilled fuel and mashed up aluminum around the battery, uh, something's going to arc against that battery and it's a bad combination. So that's the sort of idea behind the battery master switch is, is be able to completely unhook the battery. If you had an ejection switch on, on the airplane, so if you knew you were going to have a bad landing, if you could punch a button and just kick the battery clear out of the airplane, <laughs> it'd be a, a good way to plan your arrival with the ground.
0: Okay, so bottom line, it's still a good sure, idea. Sure,
1: absolutely. And whether it's a manual switch or a, uh, a battery contactor, it uh, doesn't make a whole lot of difference. Uh, there's been people really honk about reliability of some of these contactors, and I I still show those old Model 70 uh, Stancor RBF controls uh, uh, Cole Hersey uh, whiskey barrel contactors in my designs, and people say, ah, you know, those are for garden tractors and they're pieces of junk and so forth. But they've got an amazing track record, and they're inexpensive, And if you have one go bad, it's not, you know, it it doesn't create a hazard in your airplane. So, uh, they're, they're easy to replace and they're inexpensive to replace. And they last a long time if they don't get water dumped on them. And so I've continued to use them in my designs for uh, 50 years.
0: All right. And what about avionics switches?
1: That was a, that was a, I was at Cessna when the avionics master switch was born and, uh, when I went to work there in 65, all the radios had vacuum tubes in them, and we didn't have an avionics master switch, and if you had a full-up stack of radios in a Cessna 210, my golly, those things, all those boxes with all the vacuum tubes in there, and they put out a lot of heat, and, and uh, you didn't even turn some radios on until you had the airplane, uh, up and running, but, uh, After uh, it was about 1967, 68, we started getting some hybrid radios. Uh, Navcom 300s from ARC had combinations of transistors in the power supplies and audio systems and tubes every place else. And uh, for some reason, they'd get a brand new airplane out on the line that somebody would go out to take delivery of the airplane and the radio would be dead. And it was killing transistors. And so somebody figured, oh, golly, it was spikes from the starter that was getting the transistors. And they said, well, we got we to gotta do something about this. And the avionics master switch was born right there. It says, oh, if we put this switch on here that unhooks every solid state device from the, from the bus while they're cranking the airplane, this will make sure that the spikes from the starter don't zap the transistors. And sure enough, they put the switch in there, and sure enough, if the radios were all off while you were cranking the engine, it, the radios didn't die. Well, over the years, we found out it wasn't spikes from the starter, it was low voltage. And an airplane that had been sitting out on a ramp for weeks maybe never had its battery fully charged, and they were lousy, uh, oh golly, I forget who we were buying batteries from back there, but... More often than not, you'd have to jump start the airplane to get it started to make delivery of the airplane. But he'd try to start it first. And so he'd hit the starter and it'd go, Ugh, and the battery would be dead. And if a radio happened to be on during that event, it would probably kill that radio. But it wasn't a high voltage spike, it was low voltage that got it. The transistors were coming out of saturation and power supplies, and it killed them. Well, In intervening years, DO-160 says, hey, expect to see low voltage, high voltage, intermittent voltages, see these noises, see all these things happen. There's a whole litany of electrical phenomenon that's going to get thrown at your radio in the lab, and these are characteristic of what happens in the airplane on a day-to-day basis. And if your radio will survive that, well, then you're good to go and you don't need an avionics master switch there's no reason to protect the radio from things that are expected to be there so I haven't shown an avionics master switch in in any of my designs for 30 years Uh, it's it's just totally unnecessary for protecting the radios Uh, now later on people said well I'd like to relieve some loads on the bus while I'm cranking gives me more snort to crank the engine Well, it's all solid state radios. What is the total load on the battery just before you hit the starter button? Oh, well, it's three or four or five amps. And now you hit the starter and you're loading the battery to another 200 amps. How much difference are you going to get in starter performance by relieving it of an extra five amp load? And the answer is not much. In fact, probably none. (laughs) So... uh, a lot of the reasons for having an avionics master switch just don't stand up in, in practical physics.
3: But what does DO standards stand for? Exactly what does DO stand for?
1: Uh, let's see, DO is a document. Designed
3: operation or something? or?
1: There is an organization, and it's you know, you know about UL Laboratories? Yes. Okay, they're, they're a private certifying organization that's funded by the members of UL. There is an equivalent to that uh, that start. I think there's a couple of them. One is Air Rink, and that, that deals with issues for the air transport uh, uh, organization. But then another one called uh, RTCA, Radio Commission uh, for Technology. Uh, Sure. I forget what the acronym is. But it's in Washington, D.C., and they publish a whole line of documents, and they have numbers on them, and DO-160 is one of them.
3: And it's a book. DO actually stands for? I, uh,
1: I think it's just a document number. Okay.
3: It's just no a wonder still, it
1: <laughs> I, I don't think the DO is an acronym for anything, no.
3: Okay, that's what I was wondering.
1: yeah. But there's a whole bunch of them now, and you'll see uh, DO-178 covers software, and DO-254 covers hardware, and do and Then there's the TSOs, and that's, those are FAA documents. And those do a similar thing for setting design standards for, for products that go on airplanes. And uh, if if you run the run the gamut on a DO-160 qualification for pace avionics, there's no reason to, to worry about hurting it. From any source of noise or stimulus from the airplane, people have worried about that needlessly. Say, "Well, I got this two thousand dollar radio. It's got all those little bitty transistors in it." I says, "Well, I used to do two thousand dollar boxes of control pitch trim on a beach jet or on a on a Learjet, and and it's it's got the same kind of transistors in it. It's back in the tail of the airplane, and it comes on with a master switch. And I don't shut it off while they're cranking the engines. We designed it to." To, to withstand those things. It's not hard to do. So, uh, the, the need for an avionics master switch just totally evaporated about, it came into existence in 1968 or nine, and it kind of went away in 1975 and, and, but it's been hanging around since.
0: Okay. Well, Bob, uh, I want to do one more topic before we wrap all this sure. up. And that's the idea of, of grounding, uh, specifically, what are the what are the pitfalls? What do people generally do wrong? You know, for bad grounds and and uh, ground loops and all that. So talk to us about grounding and help us make sure we do it right.
1: Well, that's one of my favorite chapters in the book, and that's that's on my website, by the way. And there's uh, in the back of the in the uh, back of the book is what I call the Z figures, which are all the various architectures. There's one drawing; it's a Z15, I think, that speaks to various grounding architectures. And, uh, and I'd recommend people study those things and look at them. But the, if you're going to try to summarize those, uh, the first objective is to keep victims, potential victims, isolated from potential antagonists. Well, what are the antagonists? Uh, well, vent blowers, strobe power supplies, uh, maybe a power supply on an LED landing light. Uh, you know, who knows? and again a lot of those had to pass deal 160 qualification before they could get in a a certified airplane but you can go down to joe blow's uh, automotive parts and buy something to put on your airplane and it may have a noise problem that is not covered by uh, deal 160 recommendations so it could be in a potential antagonist but by and large, you can install those things willy-nilly all over the airplane, ground them locally, and do anything you want, and they'll run just fine. But when you start installing your potential victims, which are going to be the intercom systems, the EFIS systems, instrumentation for the engine, uh, uh, nav radios, this kind of thing, all of those things want to have a common ground, kind of right at the instrument panel. Don't ground anything remotely. If anything is going to ground remotely, it's done only if the instructions that come with the, the gizmo tell you to do that. And a good example of that is like antennas. You're going to run a coax back in the tail of the airplane and the base of that antenna is going to ground back there. And that's per instructions and that's that's grounded for a good reason. Or you may have a sensor up on the engine that's uh, got three wires coming out of it and says one goes to ground and one goes to 12 volts and the other one is a signal that goes to your EFIS. Unless they tell you to ground that thing at the engine, I take all three of those wires in and connect them the, the the far end at the EFIS system on the panel. Uh, microphone jacks should never be grounded to the airframe. You put the little insulating washers under them. Uh, same thing with headphone jacks. And it's a few little things like that that keep your potential victims isolated from all the other noise sources that are running around on the airframe. and, uh, and it's it's not hard to do. I've, uh, however, I've, I've been in airplanes, I've been in hawkers, eight hundreds of uh, uh, beach jets and and when you're sitting on the ground on ground power and everything's nice and quiet, you turn up the volume on a lot of intercoms or radios and you can hear all kinds of trash in the background that's probably ground loop induced but it's so low that once you crank up the engines and so forth uh, you can't hear it and so it's it becomes insignificant but uh you should be able to sit in your airplane and uh the engine running and every accessory on an airplane and turn the volume all the way up on your radios and not hear a thing out of, you know, that doesn't belong there. Uh, spark noise or alternator noise or blower noise or any of those other things that might crop up. And if you've got a noise problem, uh, the first thing to look at is a potential for for a, a ground loop, which means you've got a headset jack that's improperly grounded. Uh wire routing almost never fixes anything i've had one case where it did in a car but that was a combination of a ground loop and wire routing and, and I, I love to talk about that one in a seminar but it's uh, but it's never going to happen in your airplane for the for the most part if you've got a noise problem it's either directly radiated which means you hear it when the signal comes on somebody's talking to you and you're hearing some noise that comes in while they're talking and that's a radiated noise, and those are pretty rare. And the rest of them are going to be conducted noises, and most of those will come in through a badly architectured ground system. So just reading over that Chapter 15 and and ground all uh, the victims at the panel and ground all the antagonists up on the firewall or scattered around the airplane and just keep them separate from each other and you're going to be fine.
0: Okay, good. Um, so if you had to have a short list of uh... – common mistakes i I know you kind of covered the 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 conceptual thing but the specific mistakes what do you think those common specific mistakes are
1: oh in terms of grounding or or just
0: right and you got grounding
1: uh you know we haven't had a really intensive noise chasing discussion on the aeroelectric list in a long time in fact i can't remember when the last time was we had one it used to be fairly common uh, and it happened most often on RVs, you know, metal airplanes, where you you, <laughs> you have a, a, a potential for loading up an airframe with a lot of noise sources, and then mis misapplying your grounds on the victims and the, and a couple's in there. But uh, I don't I don't think there's uh, I can't think of anything that I'd say is is a prominent uh, error. Uh, uh, read through the chapter on on noise and 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 follow the thing about the headset jacks and the, and the grounding architecture, and it should be zero zero problems.
0: Yeah. Okay. And and uh, the um, the headset jacks, from my experience, th- those are always like a prime candidate, especially when they're talking about you know noise in the headset. Uh, that's usually what it is. Those little things break or they shift, and you, you get a little contact or something like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: What about if you have a, a a strobe power supply that you can hear in the headset? How do you chase that down and and solve that?
1: Well, uh, that make sure that isn't coming in as a ground loop. I mean, if you ground the strobe out in the wing, uh, or where where do you mount your strobe supplies? Are they behind a seat, maybe or? I I don't know.
0: I, I don't I don't have this specifically. I'm just kind of thinking about what what people might encounter. Well,
1: uh. What, the, the, it's, again, playing the game of clue. You've got an antagonist. You need to identify who's making the noise, who is suffering from the noise, and then what is the propagation mode that gets the noise from the antagonist to the victim. And usually the first thing you try to do is break that propagation mode. In in the case of a bad architecture ground, it would be break the ground loop. But sometimes you have to put a filter on the antagonist and you'll see those filters at Radio Shack. They used to have them back in the CB radio days where, uh, yeah, you could add this filter to the back of a radio and it would make it tolerate the nose noises that were in the car in the first place. Uh, but that, that's exceedingly rare. I don't know if uh, there, there just aren't that many products out there that, that are that noisy or that, Potentially uh, uh, a victim that you might have to add a filter to uh, I, I haven't I haven't bolted a filter onto it <laughs> I can't remember the last time I did one
0: Okay, all right. Well, uh, John Gary um, any other uh, final kind of topics or questions before we start closing this out?
3: No, very informative uh, discussion in Mr. Knuckles. We appreciate it once again. Oh,
1: uh, thank you. I'm, I enjoy doing it and enjoy sharing this. Uh, in fact, I've, uh, you guys are my only business now. I've gotten completely out of certified airplanes for uh, for uh, uh, regulatory reasons. I, uh, it's become so difficult to do the simplest things on a certified airplane that I can't stand it anymore. <laughs>
0: Well, we like to keep things challenging and uh, create new, innovative ways to cause problems. Well,
1: so. and the, but the difference being, if we see something we want to try on one of your airplanes, we'll go out to the hangar and do it. And there was a time at Beach I could go out to the hangar and do it. And now I've got to have a committee of 20 approve it. And I've had literally the last thing I got involved with out at, uh, at uh, Beach was after it was bought by Textron. And there was a problem that if it had been 1980, I'd have had that done in a week. Easy. And it took them nine months. And, and they still did exactly what I was going to do in 1980, but just getting it through the all the bottlenecks was... And I said, that's it. I, I quit. <laughs> I'm not to do this anymore.
0: Well, we're glad to have you on the team, so uh, don't go anywhere. Well, yeah, Bob,
2: you're a wealth of knowledge and your history is is amazing. It's really interesting to hear you talk about your your journey through uh, avionics and oh. <laughs> aircraft electronics.
1: I, I was born at an exceedingly fortunate time. I got started in electronics, I think, in about the fourth grade. In fact, I'm sitting here looking at two books on my bookshelf. I think I mentioned them last time we talked. They got me started in electronics, and Uncle gave them to me. But it was at the, at the mature era of the vacuum tube electronics. And, and then I got involved in airplanes right during the transition from generators to alternators, vacuum tubes to solid state. And, uh, and I got my feet into both eras, if you will. And that gave me a foundation in physics and history that few of my contemporaries have. And, and it's been exceedingly valuable to me, and I'm I'm, I'm pleased to make it available to you guys. I just
0: Well, that's great, Bob. Um, and for anybody that is interested, um, you can go to Bob's website. I'll put a link in the show notes. You can uh, purchase a copy of the AeroElectric Connection. Um, there's all kinds of free resources on the website. But, but really, if you're starting out with no knowledge, simply... Reading that book is going to bring you up to the point that you're you're really ready to to do your own electrical system in your home building. I mean, it's it's really that good. That 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 alone will get you to where you need
1: to be. Well, and the book is is on the website in PDF. If somebody wants to download it, and just read it on the screen. I can't read a book on the screen. I, I got to hold the darn thing in my hands.
0: <laughs> yeah, me too. I got to take it out to the shop, and <laughs> it's worth the the few bucks that it costs to, to buy it and have it right in front of
1: you. $35 down to $19 back about, I don't know when, that's when I found some cheaper printing sources. I've tried to keep the darn thing affordable cause I just can't, uh, I can't absorb a book off the screen like I can out of a printed page.
3: I agree with
1: you.
0: Well, uh, we'll have to have you back on here again. Uh, there, there's lots more to dig into, so we will circle back and uh, identify a few other really good topics, and, uh, and we'll keep digging into this. Okay. Well, thanks again, Bob. Uh, really appreciate it. It's always a pleasure talking to you. And uh, I know I've got a, 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 a million more questions that I look forward to kind of firing off at you. Well,
1: I'll put them on. Um, Are you on the Aeroelectric list?
0: I am. I, I don't post really a lot, but I but I read the digest every morning, and I really well, enjoy it. Well,
1: Put your questions up there. Right? There's let's let's share them with the world. We can uh, be glad to deal with them at any time.
0: All right, and we'll put a link to the uh, the Aeroelectric uh, Matronics forum as well. If anybody's not on there, uh, lots of good info. All right, well, thanks, Bob, and for everyone else, uh, thanks for uh, for joining us again. Uh, you can get to the show notes on the website at sonicsflight.com. You can find the the direct link to the show notes at sonicsflight/slash and uh, download or subscribe to the show through iTunes or Google Play or whatever your favorite podcast app is. And with that, uh, Gary and John, uh, good talking to you guys as always. I think we're probably due for a nice easy topic next time, so we'll kick around a few good topics and surprise everyone with something interesting. Other than that, get out there and, and uh, get plenty of flying in. The weather's hot, but, but great, so I'm trying to get after it. I'm
2: going to fly to work tomorrow,
0: so... See you later, guys. All right, right. right, you guys. Take care. We'll talk to you next time.